Hello and welcome to Cycling Talk with me, Georgia Mahoney. Today I'm joined by the man who cycled the world twice, Mark Beaumont. This is an episode I'm really looking forward to, so let's just get straight into it. Thank you for joining me today, Mark. Hey, good to chat to you. What was your first memory of being on a bike? Uh, my first memory would be on the farm, riding a hand-me-down bike from my big sister, Heather. There was a big hill which came down to the farmhouse itself. And uh, that's where I learned to ride. So I didn't really need to pedal. It was just a case of freewheeling down the gravel track, splashing through the puddles. And then when I got better at it, skidding until the back tire wore through. So we were miles from anywhere. I mean, it was a, it was a mile even to get to the nearest road. So it was all dirt. It was all dirt tracks and farm tracks and forestry. And I think I was 12 before I got my own bicycle. Before that, it was all hand-me-downs. What was your first bike you remember being really excited about? I had a, a white Peugeot mountain bike with 15 gears, and I just thought that was the coolest thing. Um, I remember going to Richard's bike shop in Perth and choosing it. It was the first new bike I'd got, and um, yeah, I just rode and rode and rode that thing. It's interesting because... I didn't go to school. So I didn't go to school until I was in secondary school. So I was homeschooled and I spent my entire time on the farm. So you imagine every morning before breakfast, we had 60 goats to milk. We had 200 hens to collect the eggs from. We had 13 horses to, and ponies to put out and muck out. And so there was like an hour and a half, two hours of chores to do before breakfast. And then I would spend an hour or two around the kitchen table and then I'd be back out on the farm. And so horse riding or pony riding, I guess, at that age and cycling and just being out in the farm was kind of everything I, everything I did. So I didn't, I didn't really have a normal, I, I guess because I didn't go to school until I was 12, being homeschooled meant I spent a lot of my time cycling and horse riding and working on the farm. So I spent my whole time outside, really. Yeah. Did you have many friends before you went to the secondary school then? No, no, because I didn't really know anyone. It was me and my two sisters um, and the goats and the sheep and the cows and the, the, uh, the farm animals. No, it was, it was really rural. Like I was in the foothills of the highlands of Scotland. I didn't miss it because I'd never had that. So I'd never, if you, imagine you've never been into a classroom. You've never been in the playground. You don't know what you're missing. Like I was perfectly happy. Um, occasionally, my grandparents would come and visit. Um, we knew some of the neighbours and some of the, the children from other farms. But no, my, my reference points for like having a normal social life was very limited until I was 12. It was, just, it was just me and my sisters. We had something called the FAF, which was the Family Army Force. And my favorite book was the SAS Survival Guide. And we tried to do lots of things out of that, uh, out of that book. So we sort of went around in overalls and army outfits and pretended we were a little family army. But it was just the three of us, really. <laughs> Did you compete in any sports? Not much. I, I never... Okay, so, so the first sports that I competed at was in the pony club. So um, I was really more keen on pony riding than cycling until I was much older. Um, so when you're in the, in the pony club, you get to do triathlons, which is 
uh, horse riding, uh, running, and air pistol shooting. Oh. It's a strange, strange combination. So uh, yeah, no, I went, when I was your age, I was I was doing that quite competitively, and um, it's great fun. You used to get this little air pistol and shoot cans and targets with it, um, and uh, I didn't I didn't ever enter a bike race. I guess the next thing I was competitive at was skiing. I grew I live I grew up very close to Glenshee, and um, so I loved skiing. I was I was a season ticket holder up there. My next door neighbour was the head of ski patrol. So when it was a a powder day skiing, I used to go up there all the time, which was great. And I guess I raced quite a lot when I was fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. But I never I never I never raced at cycling ever. I've still not ever raced at cycling. Mm. So I understand that age 12, you cycled across Scotland. What made you want to do that? Well, when I was, um, when I was 11, I read in a local newspaper about somebody who had cycled from Land's End to John O'Groats and living in Devon, you must see lots of those people cycling, cycling north or south. So I had no idea how far that was or how hard that would be, but I just thought it sounded like an amazing idea. So I said to my mum, can I cycle the length of Britain? And she said, well, look, Mark, why don't you try something smaller first? Because you've not really cycled off the farm before. Uh, so I had no idea what that big, I, that dream was. But with her support, I set out to cycle across Scotland, which was three days, 45 miles a day. And um, I loved it. I didn't just enjoy the, the cycle, but I enjoyed the planning of it going door to door in my local town, Blaygarry, and doing some fundraising for some local charities. Afterwards, I got to present the charity checks, meet Princess Royal, hand over some money, which which bought a a horse trailer for a local horse charity. And it was just really cool. Like, so the whole planning it, doing it, and then sharing my story afterwards was something that I really enjoyed. And in a weird way, that's why I still do. You know, I'm 37 now, not... 12 but um I've kind of made a career out of doing that (laughs) yeah so at 15 you cycled Land's End to John O'Groats can you tell me about that yeah so that was my first thousand mile cycle first really big cycle on my own first solo cycle albeit I had my mum and dad in the family car the farm car following me for support so it was how would I would describe that? Like, again, I still had no, I'd never raced, I'd never been coached. Um, but I just sort of thought, I want to do that. It now been a dream for three years. I found it really hard. I went from the top to the bottom. And I realized that most people go from the bottom to the top, because then you've got the prevailing winds, you've got the wind with you. So going the wrong way around, so to speak, meant I had a headwind a lot of the way and I had some pretty bad weather. But the wonderful thing you learn about endurance cycling is that, you know, every day is different. You know, you have good days, you have bad days, but you can keep going and you learn a lot more about your head and the way you're thinking about it than than you do about, you know, just the physical strength to do it. You can normally keep going as long as you, you know, get the right food in and uh, and break down the big the big ride. So it was quite scary setting out doing a thousand miles at the age of 15, but um, but I did it. I loved it. And um and again, I was very soon thinking, well, if I can do that, what, what else can I do? And you can sort of see over the years how one ambition quite clearly led to the next. There's been a clear chronology, whereas 
you know, when I was 11 years old, I wasn't saying, oh, I want to cycle around the world twice. That would be crazy. I, I just thought, well, I want to do something. And then something led to something bigger and bigger and bigger. And so by the time I was 22, I was ready to ride around the world the first time. And, you know, now I've done expeditions to 130 countries. So you can sort of see over the years how you don't need to know where you're going to end up. You just need to be passionate about something and, you know, get, get busy doing it. Yeah. How did you train for these challenges? Those early trips, I didn't train that much for. I mean, I guess, you know, like any kid, I was just pretty physical anyway. I loved riding my bicycle. I was out on the farm. I was working on the farm. I mean, because we were on the farm, it was it was pretty physical to to do all the daily chores. So I was fit. I was pretty strong, but I didn't have a coach like I didn't. Um, I didn't go to a club. I didn't have any formal training. I just, I just enjoyed riding my bike and I got lots of practice at it. And um, really the structure and the performance side of what I do has only come in the last 10 years with all the really, really fast record breaking that I've done. In those early days, it was just the love for adventure. It was the love to get out there and push myself. And I think a lot of young people can get really freaked out by the pressure of training and the pressure profession of sort of being too professional too quickly. I think you're much better just to keep the love in what you do and to do it because you enjoy it, not because you're, and, and, and the interesting thing within adventure sports is the only person you're competing with is yourself. It's not like you're looking around you and going, am I better than them or any, any comparative success. It's purely about, am I enjoying it? How do I get better? How do I push myself? How do I continue to make that personal best better? And I think that's a lot more positive way to develop as an athlete rather than thinking, can I beat everyone else? You know, you can't always beat everyone else, but you can still have a great time. And your enjoyment is always the most important thing. Yeah, I totally agree. So you were able to manage your education with your riding them. Yeah, I mean, the education is interesting when you're homeschooled because even though I didn't study that much as a kid, uh, when I went to high school, I found the transition academically pretty easy. Like I didn't, you know, I would say I'd maybe not been learning exactly the same things when I was homeschooled, but I didn't have any difficulty keeping up uh, in class. Um, by the time I did my big exams at the end of um uh, of high school I got I got straight A's I was quite a bright kid at school but I found it quite difficult to transition um, socially because you imagine you're only two friends or your sisters until you're 12 and then you're put into a school with 1,300 kids I had a lot to learn and um, you know I was bullied a little bit when I was 12, 13, 14 I was just very different than all the other kids you know it was just simple things like I I didn't know what the rules of the playground were and I didn't you know I guess wrong haircut wrong shoes wrong wrong school bag like I just didn't know what was cool and what wasn't and um, when you've sort of lived on another planet as a homeschooled kid uh, and then you're then you're plonked into a, a very formal big city school it's it's a really it's a really difficult transition and I don't think I'd wish that on my own children so whilst I had wonderful freedom as a child and I loved what that gave me in a sense of independence. I think, you know, those formative years when I was really young stay with you your whole life. So 
you know, I'm still the homeschooled sort of uh, kid living on a farm who's much more comfortable, um, you know, in small groups out in the wilderness doing adventures than if you put me in like a really, you know, busy environment or, you know, a, a, like a, a social dynamic, like a, anything like a playground, I immediately sort of go, go out very quiet. And I think it's just because for those first 10, 12 years, that wasn't part of what I did. So your question was about studies, but I think in terms of that bit was relatively straightforward. It was really growing up as a young person, I found challenging because I just didn't, didn't have all those reference points um, until I was going to high school. Mm. So you then went to university. What did you study? I studied uh, economics and politics. So I was pretty good at maths at school. And if I'd had my way, I would have studied art. I loved art. I was ducks of art at my school, which means you get the top prize for art. So art was my passion. But when you get straight A's, your teachers and sometimes your parents tell you to go and do the best, the, 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 the hardest subject you can at university, the one that takes the hardest grades. And so it's actually quite hard for people who get straight A's at school to then go, do you know what, I'm going to be an artist. Um, that's not a, you know, if you get straight A's, you go, you're, you're often told to go and be a, a lawyer or a, an accountant or a doctor. Um, so that's what happened to me. I did enjoy my degree. I really enjoyed economics and politics. It teaches you a lot about the world. But in a strange way, I've gone full circle. And now that I make my living as a filmmaker and you know a, an athlete and as a broadcaster, I get to be hugely creative. I've just published my fifth book. And you know, storytelling and I'd say the creative side of what I enjoyed when I was at high school has, has become, you know, hugely important. And in a weird way, I, I still use my degree as well. Even though I never had a traditional career, the economics is hugely um, important. I now spend some of my time investing and building early stage businesses, really important businesses around subjects like climate change, you know, and how, how the world is needing a lot of these fantastic innovations to, um, to make sure that it's sustainable. So most of my friends after university um, got graduate placement jobs and went into city offices. And I decided to cycle around the world. And, um, you know, my career over the last 15 years has been a very entrepreneurial one. I've made it, made it up myself. So I've written books, I've made films, I've done lots of expeditions. But I, you know, I have used my degree in so far as I, I invest and help really exciting businesses grow. And, um, and I enjoy that. You know, if you've got a passion for something, you can, you can make a business out of it. It's just harder because there's often nobody to tell you what to do. You've got to, you've got to create the opportunities yourself. Mm, definitely. So when did you first come up with the idea that you were going to cycle around the world? I was probably about halfway through university, so maybe about 20 years old. And um, I don't know where that came from. I, uh, there was no specific person. I grew up, when I was a teenager, I watched Ellen MacArthur sailing around the world. And, you know, there's nothing bigger. It's the world. How, how fast can you get around the world? You know, I enjoyed riding my bicycle. I'd cycled by that point across Europe and Scandinavia and the length of Italy. And, wow. you know, it's these ambitions had grown. And I sort of thought, well, I wonder if I could cycle around the world. And when I started researching it, 
I assumed that it would be the most, you know, coveted professional world record out there. It's the world. So I was amazed to find out that the world record stood at 276 days to get around the planet. And even then, when I was 20, 21 years old, I thought, well, that's really slow. Um, And whilst I was studying, I watched somebody try to break the record and they missed it. And I thought, what don't I know? Why is this so hard? Like, why, why, why is the record not better than it is? And my really crude sum the first time was I could ride 100 miles a day. And if you can ride 100 miles a day for 18,000 miles, which is what the record is, then that's 180 days, which is like half a year. So I thought, well, that's pretty simple. I'll just ride 100 miles a day. And that will get me around the world in what eventually would be 195 days because I took a, a day, a fortnight for any flights and contingency. So that was it. That was like how hard my son was the first time. Ride 100 miles a day, take a break uh, once a fortnight, and that's you around the world in half a year. And so I broke the previous world record by loads, like two months. But in my mind, I just did exactly what I said I was going to do, which was ride my bike 100 miles a day. And the reaction was amazing because everyone was like, wow, we can't believe you've broken a record by two months. But I, my reaction was, well, I don't know why nobody else has thought about this before. Like, it's, it's the world. Like, why, why is not everyone going for this who likes riding bikes long ways? And it's interesting now because we are 13, 14 years on. So that's a good point. What, what, year, what year were you born? I was born in 2008, so actually a few weeks after you finished yeah. the challenge. So is your birthday in like April or May? Uh, my birthday's in March. March. Okay, so literally a couple months afterwards. No, a month afterwards. I finished on February the 15th. And I only know that because the Sun newspaper asked if I could finish on the 14th to make it a Valentine's Day story. And um, I did feedback to them very politely that if I could finish a day quicker, I would not to make it a Valentine's Day story. Um, so, so yes, I'll always remember the day I finished. So you were born a month afterwards. Um, so a lot's changed during your lifetime. Um, when I went for the record, I'm not saying that everyone could have done it, but anyone who could ride their bike 100 miles a day could have done that. I wasn't a professional bike rider then. I'd never been trained. Like I, I was just passionate about riding my bike, but I spotted an opportunity and I went for it. Whereas now, I mean, the record now to get around the planet, you know, is 78 days. And you can't even compare those things. You know, you're going the best part of a thousand miles every four days. So, you know, no, nobody can just leave university and go, do you know what? I'm going to have a go at that now. It is so hard to go that fast, that far every single day for two and a half months that it's no longer an amateur record. Um, So I guess I feel lucky that I spotted an opportunity and I had the chance to go for it when I did. Yeah, actually in preparation, I watched The Man Who Cycled the World on YouTube and I think I was amazed at how different things were in terms of equipment and technology to how they are now and the things that I sort of take for granted. And I made a lot of notes um, of things that I wanted to ask you. So first of all, so one of the things that I noticed was that you didn't have a cycle computer on your bike. And I have one of the most basic Garmin's and GPS trackers. 
and it can do more than what your um mm. what what your device could do on your bike back then and i i didn't realize that things were just so different mm. yeah and it, it wasn't you know it wasn't i know it's your entire lifetime but it's not that long ago mm. and um so i mean for example when i filmed that round the world cycle for the bbc I recorded it onto mini DV. That's tape. That's reel to reel tape. So you can ask your mom and dad what that was. Um, and I would literally have to courier it back from the other side of the world and hope it would make it back. So now, you know, you record the whole thing onto your phone or tiny little cameras. Whereas I was carrying these big cameras and filming onto old fashioned tape, which is analog recording. And as you say, the, my GPS tracker weighed, weighed half a kilo. So it was this huge big unit that I had to pack into my bag. And um, rather than having the sort of information you have on the Garmin on your handlebars, I, when I stopped at border crossings or airports, I had to get witness signatures. So I had to get people to literally sign a bit of paper and say, I saw you there at that time, because there wasn't the same level of uh, data around my you know because now you overlay your speed and your cadence and your heart rate and you can see real-time data for your entire ride whereas back then there was some gps tracking but it was pretty it was pretty different for sure mm, yeah and i i noticed that you also planned all of your route on a map whether now mm. you could plan it on your phone and you had to see all the things and try and work out where you were from the map? Yeah, I mean, having a really good knowledge of, pap of paper map routing, like how to use maps is still super useful. So of course I use, you know, I use Komoot a lot to find my routes now. I use, you know, GPS mapping, but I think it's still a fantastic um, skill to have to be able to, especially when you're out doing mountain biking and hill walking to be able to read the maps properly, because it gives you a far better knowledge of what's around you. If you just follow a Garmin route, then it just tells you where you want to go without really considering what your options are or your contingencies if things go wrong. So I think what paper mapping allows you to do is always have context to your journey, as opposed to just sort of literally riding down a corridor and you know, following a dotted line, which is say, turn right turn left so i'm a massive fan of digital mapping but to still have the skills to read and use a map and compass is is something i, th I think is really important mm, yeah and obviously you are a vegetarian and you had to sort of stop that whilst you were doing your ride around the world how was that for you yeah i've I find that really hard. I was on the Ukrainian-Romanian border and, you know, basically I would have been living on bread and potatoes if I'd stuck to a vegetarian diet. So it was a very practical decision. I give up on my, my vegetarian diet or I give up on the cycle. So on quite a lot of expeditions I've been on, I had to eat um, whatever I could find. I try and keep my food as natural as possible. I try and keep it as plant-based as possible but it's not always been possible to be completely plant-based and um, yeah, you just got to be practical. But I think 
I wouldn't say I'm a strict vegetarian. I would just say that I, I like to know where my foods come from. I like to keep it as there's a, there's a, there's a fantastic um, seven letter sentence, which um, is quite famous about nutrition, which I think sums it up well, which is um, uh, eat food, not too much, mainly plants. So if you remember those seven words, then that's a pretty good diet. That's how, so eat food, not too much, mainly plants. That is that is a good way of summarizing a healthy diet. Yeah. So I noticed how when you were in Pakistan, I think, um, you uh, it was possible that you could have been taken hostage and people were looking at you and you had to be careful because you had that video camera. Whether now you could have like a GoPro on your helmet and nobody would notice. How, how was it going through these countries that were quite dangerous and you weren't sure what was going to happen? Well, I mean, you raise an interesting point because sometimes the camera can be a real help in difficult situations. You know, if you, it can, you've got to be very careful how and when you use your camera. So sometimes I'll make a point of saying I'm a, I'm a BBC camera person, I'm I'm making a film and this is important. And that gives you a certain, a certain sort of importance in a situation which can get you out of difficulty if you're in. Whereas other times you want to hide those cameras and make sure that you just look like any normal tourist. Um, so I don't think I would ever put myself in a situation where I was trying to film secretly. So the idea of having cameras that people even though the technology would allow you to do that now, because you would get into, you could get yourself into a lot of difficulty. Um, but yes, lots of places I've filmed in, like Pakistan, like Egypt, parts of Ethiopia, Mexico, there's been, you know, a fair amount of risk. And I've at times had to have security with me or local police forces to get through safely. So a lot about doing those journeys is about, preparing ahead of time knowing what the risk is like going through southern pakistan and uh parts of iran the, the british embassy didn't want me to be there so i had to really be careful know what my you know know who could help me and you know i had to get out of there if i got into trouble i was sleeping in police sleeping in police stations under armed escort for mm. 500 miles yeah and in some of the countries they were in ramadan and so you found it hard to find food in the daytime. How was that? Really hard. So Ramadan, for those that don't understand, you know, means they're fasting between dawn and dusk and um, in the Islamic uh, countries. And um, so they didn't, I mean, all, when you don't eat, you can get a bit grumpy sometimes. And so the police who were looking after me, you know, thought it was a bit of a waste of time to be looking after this guy on a bicycle pedaling through the desert. So um, that probably wasn't helped when they weren't drinking and weren't eating. So all they wanted to do was get to the end of day, spread their rugs out on the desert floor and break their fast, which is at the end of, you know, at the end of the day. So, uh, and also because I was eating, uh, I needed to eat because I was riding my bicycle 100 miles a day. You know, I needed to keep stopping and finding that food, which again, in the desert, forget the fact that it's Ramadan, it's just pretty hard to find enough food and water in the desert. Yeah. Throughout your ride across the world, you had quite a lot of trouble 
with sleeping. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, so, I mean, when the exciting bit about any big solo expedition like that is by the time you get to the end of the afternoon, you're, you're then thinking, where am I going to sleep tonight? And sometimes you end up in places where there is no um, you know, good place to sleep. So I would be, you know, under the road in ditches in Iran. I would be in bus shelters sometimes. I would be, you know, if I was stuck in the towns, I'd be camped out the back of supermarkets or, um, you know, I just ended up in some really weird places. When I was out in the outback of Australia, my tent blew down in the night. So, you know, I was left sort of sleeping on top of it so it wouldn't blow away. Um, I woke up another time in the outback in Australia and there was a huntsman spider in my tent with me, which scared me a lot. <laughs> One of the cool parts was through Turkey and Iran where I ended up sleeping a lot of mosques. Yeah, I found it quite funny and a bit scary when um, I saw the part where there had been rat poo on the mattress next to you. And that was, that was quite strange because I've never, I've never seen anything like that before where you've literally got rats that would have been walking around right next to you going to the toilet. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty disgusting. I was in a hotel near Calcutta in India and I was aware in the night that there was lots of rodents and rats in my room, but it was only in the morning when it was light again that I realised that they'd literally been pooing on the pillow right next to me. So uh, yeah, it was pretty disgusting. How was it sort of seeing the different qualities of life throughout your trip across the world? Yeah, hard. I mean, hard, fascinating. I, um, when I was going back to that section, going through southern Pakistan, I was on the border of the Helmand province, which is on the border of uh, Afghanistan. And there was a lot of refugee camps. So these huge tented villages in the deserts, tens of thousands of people who had been moved out from their homes. And, um, and then when I carried on through the Indus Valley, I just went through areas of incredible poverty and, and seeing people sort of living on the roadside because their villages had been flooded and all, all sorts of hardships. And it put my own journey into real context because I thought I knew the world from having uh, studied it and been at university, but then only when you cycle, you know, you're, you're so connected to the people and the cultures and the places. It's not like you're in a car where there's a windscreen between you. You see everything, you smell everything, you experience everything. And the wonderful thing about a bicycle is you're going at a speed where you really can uh, understand the world you're going through. Um, and, uh, I found it inspiring. I met so many cool and interesting people, but I also found it very upsetting. You know, I, I realized what a sheltered life I'd had growing up homeschooled in Scotland and then going to a good school and university, you know, not everyone's so lucky. And um, I've always tried to keep that context with all my work and travel and decisions. It's very easy to get lost in your own world, but, you know, I've seen more than most, you know, traveled to well over a hundred countries and seen people living in all sorts of conditions. So yeah, it's a constant reminder to be, to be grateful for what you got and also to try and make an impact back in the world. Mm. And in the Asian countries, I noticed, and some of them 
how um, there were no women that would speak to you. Mm. How was that for you going for like weeks where you wouldn't speak to women at all? Well, it's, I mean, in some countries like in Iran, women just don't take part in public life the way they do here. So that sense of equality and um, it just doesn't exist in the same way, which they sort of accept as a cultural norm, but we find utterly bizarre. So, you know, public life, anything which is about going out and representing the family or the business is done by the men. And, you know, we can, we can disagree with that and criticize that. But at the time, I think that's based on, on our cultural norms and uh, you know I, I again a very personal perspective but I wouldn't like my daughters to not be able to have an equal voice in society I, I, I would want you know I, I certainly feel lucky that they grew up in a world where they've you know they can they can have an equal say but that's not the same the world over and I've traveled a lot through the Middle East and in Asia and other parts where as you say women just don't have that that you only ever get to speak to men which is which which is strange because in in our society um there's absolutely no well you like to think there's there's not that 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 cultural divide there's still challenges mm -hmm. but um it's not the same divide so i guess when i first cycled around the world i was still pretty young probably seems ancient to you but when I was 22 23 I was still pretty naive I was still pretty like wow okay like this is this is different you know I pedaled out of Europe and suddenly realized how different these parts of the world were and um, there's just so much to take in you know the sights the smells the experiences the cultural differences um, that the the fact that for weeks at a time I wouldn't speak to any woman was just one of many many strange things that you know you get used to when you're cycling around the world the first time yeah I was really shocked when I saw it and then my parents had to explain to me why the women wouldn't talk to you yeah, and I, yeah. it's so strange because I've always grown up with sort of men and women being equal and that being important and then these countries don't have that and so like you said, it, there are lots of cultural differences. And even when you know these things conceptually, so even though that's been explained to you, and I knew it as well, when you go and experience it for the first time, it's still strange. So there's, there's a big difference between knowing and sort of witnessing it and understanding it. It's, um, it's great that you know that now, and it will, it will make you a lot more empathetic it'll make you really understand other people's perspectives on life when they come from other countries but when you start to travel more and visit these places it'll still be a shock it really is a shock when you when you're dropped into a very different culture and go wow you know this is not normal for me yeah what was it like carrying all of the equipment that you needed for months and months on end on the bike Mm, yeah, I mean, that first time cycling around the world and then uh, I, the next year I went for a nine month cycle down the length of the Americas. Um, I had a lot of kit, you know, all the all the weight of the bags and my stove and my tent and my clothes and 
everything, my cameras, everything I needed was the bike, you know, it would have been about 35 kilos, which is pretty heavy. So the bike's pretty heavy and pretty slow, especially going up hills. Um, but there's something quite nice about packing your entire life onto a bicycle. You know, it's like, have, you know, imagine just going around your bedroom and thinking, well, I need these things. And, you know, in your bedroom, you know what's in each drawer and you kind of know where things are. Well, you, you, you get that way in the bicycle as well. You know what's in each pan you pack bag and where things are packed and everything's got its place and there's something quite nice it's like yeah it's your life life on wheels yeah and when i was watching you on the 90 mile straight in australia i found it quite frightening actually it's a big empty stretch i mean a 90 mile straight road is a crazy idea when you live in the uk but you know that whole nullabar the outback of australia it's over a thousand miles and there's nothing out there except for the odd petrol station. So it's an extraordinary expanse of nothing, just road signs and kangaroos and, and a road, just a ribbon of tarmac that goes for a thousand miles between civilizations. And there's not that many parts of the world which are so sparsely populated. You know, in the UK, you know, you think, yeah, people live in the countryside, but there's normally somebody else within a mile of where you live. Whereas in the middle of Australia, you can go for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles and there's nobody. Mm. Yeah. So if you could take one bit of modern equipment to use back in your ride in 2007, what would it be? Hmm. That's a good question. You, I mean, you were right when you mentioned some of the modern cameras, the action cams, the GoPros. That'd be pretty useful. Um, I mean, the communication technology we have now is just extraordinary. When I first went around the world, social media wasn't yet really a thing. Mm. So the ability... So back then, I would film the whole project for afterwards. Whereas now, of course, you can tell the story in real time. So... You know, t taking a smartphone completely revolutionizes your journey. But that wasn't your question. You, your question was, what bit of technology would you take on that first trip? And I actually feel so lucky that my first big expedition happened before smartphones had been invented because I really got to enjoy that journey for myself and film it for afterwards. So I genuinely think, given the choice, I wouldn't take an iPhone. I wouldn't take modern technology. I like the fact that it didn't have that need to constantly share my story on Instagram or Facebook. It was just, I was out there on my bicycle filming it for something that would be told afterwards. So I think when you layer on technology, in one way it can make your life easier, but it can also distract you from the journey you're having. So that's a very long way of answering your question. But the honest truth is, I don't think I would take any more technology. I, I, I like the fact that it was a very simple journey and it was just me trying to figure out if I could cycle around the world. That's a really interesting answer, but I really like that. <laughs> How was your life when you returned to Scotland? Was it hard to adjust? It was in a way, yeah because that had been such a big dream of mine for years. So to then uh, come back and think, well, what now? What do I do now? All my friends were at that point a year or two into their careers. 
and I'd come back and I didn't quite know what to do next. So it was a very strange transition when I first came back because I'd lost that purpose, that drive, that thing that had really taken me from university into the start of my career. And I came home to Edinburgh. I got flat. I then was asked to write a book and I found that really scary. I didn't much like writing when I was at university and school. And so if I was ever given a choice between an essay or a, an exam, I would always choose an exam. So I thought exams are much easier than essays. So then when you're asked to write a book, it's like, wow, that's a big task. Um, so the first job I had when I came back was five months to write my first book. And uh, I found that quite lonely to begin with. You know, I just had to sort of find a process and a place to do that. I used to go and sit in the, the bar at the end of my street in Edinburgh. And um, <laughs> my, my wife, Nikki, was the barmaid. So I, I used to go into this bar every day and sit there for four or five hours and write my book and just sit in the corner. And uh, that's how I met my wife. <laughs> so it was a good period, but it was a weird period because you imagine you've had this big focus and then you come back and you go, what am I going to do now? Yeah. How was your sort of physical battle with having ridden every, nearly every day and then almost stopping riding? That's always strange. Now, it's always weird. So when you do a big expedition, you've almost got to train down from it. <clears throat> you know, the second time I cycled around the world was way more intense. So I was riding 16 hours a day, averaging 240 miles a day. And um, I had to train down three, three months off the back of that, yeah. straighten out my back, sort my legs out, you know, because when you stop cycling, quite often your legs hurt doing other stuff. So walking, running, doing normal stuff. So I always joke, you know, I could happily cycle 240, 250 miles a day, but then I would struggle to run 10K because I was super fit, but fit for a purpose. So yeah. normal, normalizing my fitness and, you know, going swimming and doing low impact sports to begin with, to build up that all around strength is super important. Yeah. So next you went on to cycle the Americas. Did you feel like you needed a new focus and a new challenge? Um, I, I did. Uh, and so far as I think I was a bit lost after that first time cycling around the world, because I kind of like, like, well, I've done the world. What do I do now? Um, and the opportunity was to go back and get a, an accountancy job. But I really wanted to do more adventures. But because the um, BBC documentary had done really well, it was them that came back to me and said, right, that was a great success. Where are you going next? This will be a fully funded in-house BBC project. So the first time I, when I cycled around the world, it was so hard to get that sponsored and get it off the ground. Whereas the second time around, um, the whole thing just happened for me. Like, uh, it's not always been that way. It's not always been that easy, but I didn't need to work too hard for that second trip because I sort of did it riding the wave of success from the first one. And, you know, within months, I found myself finishing the book getting out to Alaska and starting this nine month journey down to Argentina, climbing the highest mountains in North and South America. So I loved it. And it was a very different sort of journey. I wasn't cycling nearly as far every day. I was stopping more and filming people. But um, 
yeah, it came off the back of the success of the first one. The BBC just came straight back to me and said, great, go and do another one. <laughs> Did you sort of want a better experience after what happened to you in Louisiana? Mm. So, yeah, I mean, Louisiana on the first cycle around the world was a day where I got hit by a car and then mugged. So it was pretty rubbish. Um, but I don't think I was comparing. I mean, it wasn't like I was... I mean, I think that was just A, bad luck, and B, just a rotten day. So I wasn't, whenever anything goes wrong to me in life, it's not like, I don't think I'm particularly scarred by it. It's not like I'm trying to get over any trauma. I mean, I think I'm quite good at putting things in a box and going, well, that happened, and move on. So I don't, I don't think it affected the way I was thinking about the next journey. I was quite looking forward to getting back to America. I mean, that sort of thing could happen to you anywhere. So, um, so yeah, I, I really enjoyed cycling down the Americas, but it got better in the second half. I mean, crossing into Mexico, Central America and South America was so interesting. The Spanish part of the journey. North America, I kind of knew what to expect because I'd cycled across America before. Whereas, um, yeah, the, the, the South was just amazing. And when you go out on these challenges, there is always a small chance that you won't come back home. How do you and your family deal with this fault? Um, well, I mean, I, maybe I covered that a little bit by sort of saying that when things go wrong, I'm quite pragmatic about them. I'm quite sort of matter of fact. So I think it comes into the way you plan these projects insofar as you don't go looking for danger. You're as careful as you can. You do, you know, know your contingencies in any given situation. But I'm quite, so when you do big expeditions, you get very good at thinking through how serious are the consequences and if things go do, do go wrong, you know. So you can be walking along, uh, you know, a ridge line, and it can be really really easy it can be nice and wide and you're never going to fall off this thing but if you did fall off it then there's a 3,000 meter drop on both sides so you're not going to survive or you could be walking along a really technical ridge line something which you're quite likely to fall off but if you do fall off there's only like a meter drop on each side so that's an interesting analogy because you've got a situation there where something's not likely to happen but if it happens then you're in serious trouble or something that's super likely to go wrong but if it does go wrong then the consequences are not that serious that framework that i've just described is a really useful way of thinking about anything in life that scares you because you're not just thinking in a binary sense it's safe or it's dangerous getting out of bed in the morning is dangerous stuff can go wrong but when you start to think about, well, how likely is it to go wrong? And if it does go long, wrong, how serious are the consequences? Then it stops you not doing stuff just because you're scared. And, you know, you've become a lot more analytical about figuring out what a reasonable risk is. So I don't know if that helps answer your question, but I'm just not the sort of person that won't do stuff because there's risk. I think that's a very good answer, actually. Um, so my dad actually told me about Mike Hall, an endurance rider who was killed during an event. How does that sort of news affect you? Yeah, Mike, Mike lost his life 
literally a few weeks before I set out around the world the second time. So it was in um, 2017. Um, he was a great guy. I'd met him a few times, a real inspiration in the sport, a really sort of quiet spoken guy. Um, incredibly sad. The wonderful thing about Mike is he's left a brilliant legacy. You know, he inspired so many people. He was, he was, he was really, really good at communicating what he did. So whilst it's a great loss to the sport and to his family that he's gone, um, you know, everything he did was very positive. Um, I don't think it affects me personally. I'm very proud to have known him. And um, yeah, I think his, his, his legacy in the world is a, is a really good one. Yeah. So in 2015, you set a new world record of cycling from Cairo to Cape Town in 42 days. Did you want to do this as your around the world trip didn't travel through Africa? I had definitely always been interested in Africa because it was kind of the one continent I'd not raced through, um, apart from Antarctica. But in truth, so I spent 2014 traveling around the entire Commonwealth filming for the BBC in the build-up to the Commonwealth Games. And I'd spent two and a half months traveling through the 18 Commonwealth countries of Africa, and I'd loved it. But when you're traveling through with a BBC film crew like that, it's like you're the queen, you know, you just smell fresh paint and everyone's, you know, making the place look neat and they, you only get to see the things you want, they want you to see. So it's not like when you're on a bicycle, you're, you're living life at the grassroots, you get to meet people for real. And there's none of that. When you, when you, when you waltz in with a BBC film crew, it's, it's, it's very hard to get to the real essence of a culture in a place. You know, people are just putting on a show for you the whole time. So I was fascinated to go back and really explore Africa at the grassroots rather than, you know, uh, with the diplomats and, uh, and with a film crew. Um, but also being honest about it, on the back of the Commonwealth Games, there wasn't another big TV project to go into. I thought that would open the doors to lots of other TV presenting and that's the way my career would go. But as is often the way in life, you know, sometimes you just come to an end of something and you think, oh, that's it. I thought it would lead to something else, but it didn't. And so I needed to sort of stop and go, well, what am I going to do next? Um, so I think it was sort of push-pull factors. I was sort of pulled into the fact that I was inspired by the African continent. I wanted to get back on my bike and do something interesting. But also, you know, I was kind of pushed into it because there wasn't the other career opportunities I always thought there would be. And there was that space. And I'd now had responsibilities. I had a young family. And, you know, it's very different than when you're 22 years old and graduating and you don't have a care in the world. Mm. So in 2017, you did a ride around Britain. And it was great because we could track you. And, and my mum brought me and my brother to support you near Biddeford in North Devon. Mm. And we made signs and stopped in a lay-by. It turned out that your support crew were there and you were actually coming in for some food. So we got to meet you. <laughs> cool. That was a tough old stretch. I remember it. I mean, that whole North Cornwall, North Devon, as you well know, um, is very, very hilly. Yeah. And so what would, would that be in day three or four of my round Britain? I think it would have been. So it was 14 and a half days around Britain, which was about 3,000 miles. 
And let's be honest, that training ride didn't go particularly well. Like I finished with a tear in my hamstring. I only averaged 225 miles a day. It didn't go to plan. It was hard. The weather was bad. But yeah, I mean, it taught us a lot. It taught us a lot about what we then needed to do. Because it was only nine weeks before the, between the Around Britain and the Around the World. So I thought the Around Britain would give me the fitness and the confidence to carry into the world. Whereas in actual fact, it gave me an injury. And it made me go, oh my goodness, can I actually do this? Because um, I didn't manage to hit the, the mileage that I needed to on the Around Britain. Thanks, thanks for coming to support though. That's cool. It was really nice to meet you. What sort of support did you have when you were riding across the UK? So in terms of my own support, I had two motorhomes with me. A media vehicle and a support vehicle with my physiotherapist, my chef, my all those mechanics, all those people. Um, but the support on the roadside was amazing. It felt a bit weird because it felt like a victory lap before I'd done anything. So here was me training to cycle around the world, and every day, loads and loads and loads and loads of people would come out and ride their bikes with me or turn up with cakes and homemade signs. And like you did, it was just fantastic. But I did feel like a bit of a fraud because I felt like I've not done it yet. Like I've, I've sat there on BBC Breakfast and said, I'm going to cycle around the world. And then the next morning I set out on this 3,000 mile training ride around the coastline of Britain. And then I immediately like started to really struggle um, because of the weather and some of the mistakes we made. You know, I, 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 wasn't, I wasn't ultimately able to get around quite as fast as I thought I would. So I think I was probably okay when I saw you in Devon. But by the time I got to the East Coast, so up to John O'Groats and heading down through Edinburgh and back down to, to London, I was in a pretty bad way. And I just thought, my goodness, if I can't do this for two weeks, how am I going to do it for two and a half months? Mm. The stretch that we actually saw you on is a stretch that nobody ever normally rides on because it's really busy. And so uh, every, I think a lot of people were in shock that you were riding along there when nobody else ever rides along <laughs> yeah yeah possibly possibly <laughs> uh, and of course i would be riding at weird times of day as well you know i would ride my bike from four o'clock in the morning till 10 o'clock at night yeah yeah so this wasn't actually the first time that my mum met you her and my dad um went to watch you in the local theater back in 2010 and they met you afterwards and you signed a book for us and in it, you wrote, to Luke and Georgia, think big. And then you signed it, Mark Beaumont. Awesome. Do you like traveling around and telling your story? Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's great fun. And um, the talk tours, it's bizarre to think, you know, here's us catching up in November 2020. I did a talk tour around Ireland weeks before lockdown. So I was looking back yesterday with uh, with the kids to you know, pictures on stage and then meeting people at the book signing afterwards, you know, in February of this year. And it seems like another lifetime ago when I was allowed yeah. to do that. But um, yeah, I love it. It's great fun. I, I can't describe it, but it's such a buzz to share stories and bring people into my world. And then when I chat to people afterwards, normally they reflect on my journeys, but they also reflect on their own, their own ambitions. And normally people are sort of, I always sort of say it's like living life with one eye in the mirror. You go and see somebody at a talk like that because you're interested in pushing your own ambitions and your own bike rides and your own adventures. So yeah, people are always hopefully 
getting interesting bits of information and confidence to go out and you know push their and you know very few people who ever come and hear me talk will be off to cycle around the planet but you, you know that could be just that entrepreneurial spark to start their own business or to volunteer or to do something which is meaningful to them but they maybe haven't created the time to do so the, the long answer to your short question yeah I, I really enjoy it mm. so straight after you ride around Britain you're thinking big again and you set off on a supported around the world attempt this must have been really different from your first experience and I know you on the first ride you aimed for 100 miles a day and then on the supported ride you averaged about 240 miles a day how did you achieve this yeah I mean it was a it's really hard to compare the two um I mean keep in mind there's over 10 years between them so um a lot of training a lot of practice a lot of a lot of putting science behind the ambition, you know, getting a performance team. You know, first time I cycled around the world, it was just me and my mum around the kitchen table planning it. Whereas, you know, by the time I was mid-30s and, you know, it was my, it was my job, I was a professional bike rider. Um, but I was going twice the time every day. So riding 16 hours rather than eight hours. And for every one of those 16 hours, I was riding considerably faster. So you just can't compare. I mean you got to average 25 kilometers an hour, which is about 15 miles an hour for 16 hours a day. So you get out of bed at half past three in the morning on the bike at four, ride four times four hour sets every single day for two and a half months. And, you know, there's no reference for that. Nobody's done anything like that in terms of cycling around the world. So we, I mean, it was a we, because I had a big performance team, a big media team, big logistics team, and uh, broke the previous world record by... Um, nearly 40%, I think about 37%. And, um, you know, that took a huge amount of planning. And then there was just the physical and the mental side to actually be able to do that. Um, but yeah, it's very hard to, very hard to describe and certainly very hard to compare to the first time. I think the first time probably gave me a lot of confidence. You know, I knew what it took. I knew I could cycle around the world, but, you know, first time took me 194 days, second time took me 78. I mean, it's a, it's a world apart, literally. Yeah. So actually in the first documentary on your first trip, you said quite a few times that it was a once in a lifetime experience and you don't need to do it <laughs> once. Yeah, exactly. Why did you change your mind? <laughs> yeah, good question. Yeah. It's amazing how in life your, your perspective changes on things. I mean, so many things that you'll say, I'd never do that, you'll end up doing, or I've done it, so why would I do it again? I think that was my feeling first time around. Like, I've cycled around the world, why would you do it again? But the experience was so different the second time. It was supported rather than unsupported. It was 10 years later. It was so much faster. It was, it was actually even though I was going for the same record, it was a completely different experience. And I had no, I mean, if you told me when I was 22 and I first cycled around the world that you could do this in under half the time, I wouldn't have believed you. I, I would, that, that's crazy. Like, of course you can't. I've just gone as fast as I can around the world and it took me half a year. So if you told me that somebody one day, let alone me, could do it in two and a half months, I wouldn't have believed you. So 
me saying that I'll never do that again was me thinking that that was almost unbeatable because it was my personal best. But then life changes. You're, you watch with awe and with interest other people breaking the record, your own experience increases and you just see the world differently. So I always think that, you know, hold the future lightly and pivot. You've got to, you've got to work hard. You've got to dream big, but you've got to, you've got to be open to changing your ideas and, and grasping opportunities when they come up. Mm. So I know you're now really busy with your new podcast and a new book and working for GCN. What's your next big adventure? Well, um, I'd love to do race across America. I've never really done any traditional races by that. I mean, a race where there's lots of people on the start line. I've always gone out there and done these record attempts where you're ultimately out there pushing yourself and trying to break records. So some of the, I kind of got to that point in my career where I'm doing lots of, I'm not going to go around the world again. So I'm, I'm trying, I'm enjoying lots of other adventure stuff. I'm doing a lot more gravel riding, a lot of night riding. If you follow me online and I'm running a lot more than I used to. But I'd love to do some of the world's most iconic endurance events like the Cape Epic and Race Across America and others. So I, I um, as an athlete, I'm pushing myself in lots of different ways, but also spending a lot more time with my family. You know, one of my lockdown projects was to uh, run every single street in Edinburgh with my seven-year-old daughter. So she was on her bicycle uh, and I would run alongside her. And um, yeah, we did over 500 miles together. So doesn't need to be cycling around the world that's a that's you know that was an amazing adventure as well and it was all done within five miles of home yeah so these are a few questions that I always ask my guests um how have your plans been affected by coronavirus hugely my goodness I'm somebody who spends my life flying places and going to events and Last year, I spoke at well over 100 conferences. This year, maybe I've <laughs> been to 10. So, um, no, it's extraordinary change. But the silver lining is lots of great times with the family. I got to write another book, like you said. Uh, I've got to do a lot more podcasting like this. It would have been very hard to do this last year. So, um, yeah, we're good. And it reflects back to an earlier conversation we had you know, you've got to remember the wider context, you know, I'm, I'm very, I feel very grateful for what I've got. And I never feel sorry, the fact that, you know, suddenly I'm not allowed to do some of those things that I've, in the 15 years since I left university, I've got to live out my biggest dreams in adventure and travel. So, um, you know, the fact that I've got a year where I sort of focus on things closer to home, you know, that's probably a good thing. Where's your favourite place to ride for fun? Um, well, I mean, for fun sort of suggests it's a shorter trip and I'm so biased to home to Scotland. Scotland has just got such phenomenal riding. You know, I was recently making a film with GCN up in the Cairngorms in the Highlands of Scotland, a big gravel ride, 300k. I did another film recently with them out in the West Coast. They go like Arden Merkin and Mull and over to some of the islands. So we've got some pretty cool riding, road and gravel up here in Scotland as you do down in the southwest to be fair um if you're asking me globally i'd go back to botswana or mongolia those are probably two of my favorites yeah where's your favorite place you've ever ridden 
Yeah, that's an impossible question. <laughs> um, there's moments which will stick with me my entire life. I mentioned Botswana there because there was a moment where I was cycling along near the Zambezi River, near the Zambian border, and there was a giraffe cantering alongside me. Oh, wow. And um, uh, I, I, I've cycled up the length of New Zealand twice. I always enjoy New Zealand. But I always joke that I think New Zealand's just like Scotland on the other side of the world. So maybe I just like it because it's quite familiar. Um, where, where else do I like? I love riding on the continent. So yeah, quite a lot of places over in, you know, the French Alps, Italy, even over in Cyprus. Oh, don't get me started. There's too many. <laughs> <laughs> Who is your sporting hero? Um, you can probably hear the, the girls have just come home. Um, who's my sporting hero? Well, I said at the start, I was inspired by Alan MacArthur sailing around the world. That's a pretty good hero. Mm. Um, I was always inspired by some of the big expeditions. I watch with interests athletes in other walks of life, like climbers, like Leo Holding. And um, yeah, there's, there's, there's loads of amazing adventure athletes who I now know and are buddies of mine that I'm constantly inspired by. Sarah Uten for her man-powered run and uh, her man-powered cycle and row around the world. Yeah, there's lo loads of amazing athletes out there that I keep track of and I'm inspired by. Mm. What would your advice be for young riders? Uh, enjoy it. Don't feel pressure uh, to, to be anything or create a profile or sell yourself or, you know, be professional. Just ride for fun, build your skills, if you want to join competitions, join competitions. But the only person you're trying to beat is yourself. And if you can have that mindset in sport, then you, you'll, you'll always achieve. So the beating other people can get pretty boring. Bettering yourself is a lifelong thing. So, yeah, just, just keep it personal. Just ride and push yourself as an adventure athlete and as a cyclist because you enjoy it not because of any perception of success from others yeah that's good advice so normally i would ask people what music they play before a race mm. but i'm not going to ask you that i'm going to ask you how do you keep sort of mentally calm on the bike and what motivates you to get up every morning and get back onto the bike i mean the motivation to get back onto the bike is normally because i enjoy it but 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 ultimately you're not going to pull off anything at the scale that i have unless you can suffer as well like there's days where you don't want to ride so that accountability that sort of fear of failure that if i don't do what matters today then i'm giving up on the big dream that is hugely important so you've got to be inspired and you've got to want to do it at some level but you've also got to have that grit you've got to have that resolve of knowing that every hour every day matters um so that sort of that sort of mindset you build over the years you build over just through experience and i know a lot of 
racers and fast cyclists who don't have that discipline that accountability on the bike to be be ruthless, ruthlessly consistent and as an endurance bike rider that's that's all that matters um so yeah a bit of both you've got to be inspired you've got to be positive but you've also got to have a a real fire in the belly a real grit a real like you're you're not you're not going to give up just because it's hard yeah thank you for joining me today mark it's been lovely it's been great fun and good luck with the podcast thank you hi right say hello harriet hello hello right i'll let you chat to each other for a second harriet i hear i hear that you cycled every street in edinburgh can you tell me about that um so do you remember what you did yeah so do you want to so what to, to explain what we did well, we basically. Well, what, we, we got a map and we yeah. planned our route and we went out every day, didn't we? Yeah. Do you want me to help you? Okay, so we got we got the map of Edinburgh, and every day we plotted out a little route, and then I would run, Harriet would cycle, and we would just chat about the stuff we saw. Was it fun? Yeah. <laughs> Good. And what did you, and um, explain what you got in the post last week. A blue Peter badge. Oh, wow. That's really cool. So maybe you can listen back to this podcast because it's all about cycling and adventures. Did you see any of your friends when you were riding? Um, on the last day I did. Oh, cool. And we cycled past quite a lot of your friends' houses, didn't we? And we got to wave Everyone. at them. Everyone. But it was in lockdown, so we could only wave at them, couldn't we? Especially Kieran. Especially Kieran, who's our favourite friend. Thank you for talking to me, Harriet. You're welcome. Thank you so much to Mark for coming on to the podcast. I really enjoyed hearing about his life on and off of the bike. I also enjoyed researching and watching his documentaries and listening to his podcast, Endurance. The great thing about this episode is that you don't have to understand cycling to be able to enjoy it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find our Instagram at cycling.talk.podcast and our Twitter at cycling underscore talk. You can find our podcast on Spotify, Acast or via my website. See you on the bike.